I want to thank all of those who have invested behind the scenes, on the stage, uh, many hours, many time, invested their talents for us to continue to uh, connect, whether it was online, whether it was uh, outdoors, whether at times on our outdoors we had to shift and go, uh, go online because of the weather. And so I, I've tried to, try to thank them personally, but I also want to thank them publicly. And what a, what a beautiful day we have to wrap up our outdoor service uh, uh, session, right? And uh, praise the Lord for just the opportunity uh, to do that. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we are excited about, uh, as Phil said, about next week and transitioning into indoor in-person services. Uh, make sure you uh, stay on alert and watch uh, for that information from, uh, from us related to safety protocols and guidelines and requirements and all that, all that kind of stuff. But please be praying for that transition uh, as we head into it to go well, as, uh, as uh, we have just seen God's hand in so many ways. We ask that he would continue to bless us in that. We've been in the gospel according to John, and uh, it's been a blessing to you, I hope. I know it's been a blessing uh, to me. I was speaking to one of our former global partners who is now retired and relocated to a, another part of the country, and we were talking this weekend, and he was, he was mentioning how some things, and as he was um, studying in the Gospel of John, actually, and leading uh, someone through kind of a, a, a discipling time in the, in the Gospel of John, how some things had really come alive for him, and we were talking about how when you dig in, whether you're leading a, a, a Bible study or a small group or, for me, a, a teaching series— when you really dig in, you, you, things come alive to you, right, that maybe you hadn't seen before. You read across it in a casual reading, and you're like, wow, I never noticed that before. And hopefully some of that is happening as we are, we're digging into, into the Gospel of John. And one of those things that hopefully has uh, sprung out of the, of the text for you is this idea of the signs that Jesus used and that John mentions. Uh, we've talked about them on multiple occasions the last few weeks. And the, the Greek word that we translate in our English Bible, signs, is semeon. And, a, and I, as I taught you, it, it's this idea of, a, of an indication or, or a mark, a token, or a, again, a sign. We, we get that English translation. It's something by which a person or a thing is distinguished from others and is known, uh, distinguished from other people or distinguished from other things. And the point that John has been trying to make in these opening chapters of his gospel is that there are these signs that Jesus, are do that Jesus is doing that are pointing to the fact that he is to be distinguished from all other people and that, the, that he is the Son of God, the Son of Man. Just as John the baptizer said about them, about him, he is the one who came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And so we saw, amen, so we saw how Jesus uh, did multiple signs throughout these chapters. And the first of them was found in chapter 2. He was at a wedding a party in, in Cana of Galilee, and while he was there, there was a problem, and Jesus had to turn water into wine. And in chapter 2, verse 11, it says that as he did this, that was, this was the first of his signs, that word Simeon, and he revealed his glory, uh, revealed, phanerao, to to uncover or make known or make visible something which previously was hidden. So Jesus revealed his glory, who he was, his identity, and his disciples, disciples believed in him. In fact, we saw that these signs that Jesus was doing, just like uh, when he, when he de changed the water into wine, it was those signs that he was doing that drove one Pharisee, whose name was Nicodemus, to come to him. And say to him in chapter, th or, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, and we saw this text last week, Nicodemus came to Jesus and said that, hey, we, we, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one 
could perform these signs unless God were with him. And so John is, is helping us to see Jesus in his true identity. Jesus in, in, the, in the Lagos as the light, as the life, as the lamb, as the Lord of all, as the son of God and son of man. He wants us to do that so that as he reveals himself to us, that we might do the same thing that his first followers did. Believe in him, trust in him, have faith in him, that our sin could be removed by that same lamb of God. Amen? So that's where we're at in this, in this, in this gospel so far. And uh, we've been introduced in the, in, the, in the previous chapters to another John, not John the writer of the, uh, of the gospel, but John the baptizer, right? We know that John was one who w- baptized others. He, he came and baptizing and, and people uh, as they expressed repentance. And in fact, we know that John actually baptized uh, Jesus himself. Well, we have this little interesting thing happening now while John is still involved in ministry and Jesus is beginning to start his public ministry, we have this interesting dynamic of, of kind of like an overlapping of their two ministries. And we see the mention of that in chapter 3, verse, th- verse 22. So if you have uh, your Bible or a device handy uh, and you want to open it up to uh, John chapter 3, I'm going to read those first three verses as we consider the ministries of Jesus and John the baptizer as recorded by John the writer of this gospel. So follow along with me. I'm reading from the NIV 84 translation right now. Uh, The rest of the verses that'll uh, be on the screen uh, are gonna be from the Christian Standard Bible. So follow along in either of those translations. Here John writes this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside. Now the this that John is referring to is his interaction, Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. So he's saying, after this interaction with, with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent time, some time with them and baptized. Now John, John the baptizer, was also, also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. Verse 24 says, this was before John was put in prison. Take a minute and pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for um, this particular time in history that we see the overlapping of ministries of two incredible servants of yours. And God, as we, as we dive in and, and, and see what, what happened and, and what John has to say about this rea- his relationship uh, with your son, with the Lamb of God, we pray that you would open our eyes up, Lord. God, that we wouldn't know just a little bit more about this historical event that took place, but that it might change us. So be our teacher today. Holy Spirit, take control. Open our minds, hearts, and very wills up to how you uh, want to shape us today. Give us ears to hear how you want to communicate and teach with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have John and Jesus both baptizing at the same time. And it's going to create a little bit of a dynamic of actually Jesus versus John. Because if we continue on in the text in verses 25 and 26, you'll see that a little bit of an argument begins to take place. It says at the beginning there, first sentence, Then a dispute arose between, John, between John's disciples, John the baptizer, between his disciples and a Jew about purification. Now, some have suggested that the Jew that is having this discussion with John, the baptizer, is actually Nicodemus, the one that had the interaction with Jesus at the first part of chapter 3. Could be Nicodemus, 
But we, at this point, all we know is it's an unnamed Jew. In fact, some of your English translations actually might say Jews, plural. Could have been more than one, could have been one, could have been Nicodemus. But we know that someone, either one or a couple or a few, of Jewish nature, uh, Jewish origin, came to, Je- came to John's disciples, and they're having a discussion with him about purification. We know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that at this time, there was a great deal of interest in ceremonial purification. It's kind of a hot-button topic at the time. Like, we have hot-button topics right now in our culture, don't we? Well, this was a hot-button topic at the time when Jesus and John were on the scene. We know, in fact, that the, something known as the Qumran community uh, was, was really in big for this ceremonial purification. And many believe that that's why John, who may have had a connection to this community at Qumran, that some have, uh, believe that that's why John began baptizing the way he did because of this cultural interest in ceremonial purification and the symbolism about purification that baptism um, you know, uh, signifies. And so there's this, we, we don't know, as one scholar says, there's, there's no indication of the precise question that is at issue here. We simply know that there happened to be at some level between the Jew or Jews and John's disciples a difference of opinion about this ceremonial purification. Perhaps the man was, was arguing with them that all this talk about baptism, uh, Jesus baptizing, although we'll learn from chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, it wasn't actually Jesus who was doing the baptizing, it was his disciples. So they're baptizing and John's baptizing, it's confusing. Here was, here was John, John was making bapti- disciples, people were following him, he was, a, he was a rabbi that people were following. And yet Jesus came to him, and he was baptized. Now he's out baptizing, and he's got followers. And said, in fact, some of John's followers had actually left John to go and attach themselves to Jesus, but evidently not all of them, right, because he still has some. So maybe this man or group of people that are talking to John, they're just, they're just confused, and, and, and they're, they're wondering, well, well, why should he get baptized by John when Jesus was doing so much better? Perhaps he was saying that, that with different leaders that were like operating at the same time, but so close to each other, it wasn't easy to see who was right. So there was this potential. All that we can be sure of is that was at some level, there began to be a, some level of uh, kind of like an inference of Jesus' success and maybe John, John's star beginning to wane. We see this in the world of uh, entertainment, don't we? We see show business people, you know, movie stars. One person's star begins to fade, right? Another person's star begins to rise. We see that in the entertainment world, in the, in, the, in the arts. We see it in athletics. Sometimes we see that in business, don't we? A business, a company, or an individual, their star begins to wane a little bit. Another star begins to rise. And that's what's happening here, it seems. We've got this little bit of someone trying to almost create this competition between Jesus and John. So, because of all that, because of all the, 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 these people who came to, to, to John, uh, John's uh, followers, and they complained, and evidently, his followers weren't able to refute the Jew. They weren't able to settle the, the dispute. And so, they go back to John and pick up, uh, pick up the text again. So, they go back to John the baptizer, and they tell him, Rabbi, the one you testified about, they're talking about Jesus. They don't say him by name, but they say, the one you testified about, and by the way, in the original language, the you is emphatic. The one you testified about. You were the one who gave him all the pub. You were the one who pointed people to him. 
the one you testified about, and who was with you across the Jordan, in the Jordan River, is baptizing. And, and by the way, Rabbi, here's a classic overstatement, right, by some of his followers, everyone is going to him. Obviously, it's not everyone because they're still there, right? But everyone, all the people, here he's just the hot thing now. Oh, I guess this guy that, you know, about whom you said that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I guess this guy that you said you weren't even worthy to do the lowest servant's job of untying his sandals so that his feet could be clean. I guess this guy's the hot thing now, huh? Is that what it's all about now, Rabbi? So what are we and what are you? They're trying to create this dynamic and these overlapping of ministries as one star is beginning to rise and the other star is beginning to fade trying to see what the rabbi is going to do with this. So there's a, there's a clear sort of like temptation, of course, for lots of things, right? There's a clear sort of temptation for a lot to go wrong here. And what I hope you're going to be able to see in these next few verses, as we see John, the baptizer, respond to his disciples coming to him and say, listen, this guy, that after all, you made him what he is. They're kind of implying that. You made him what he is. And look now, everyone's going to him. Who are you? What are we? <laughs> and so John's going to have to do some correction. And he's going to show us the type of person he is, John the baptizer, as he speaks into this dynamic of this little dispute about ceremonial purification that blew up into this big deal about Jesus and John, who actually weren't combatants. They weren't opponents, but somebody was trying to make them that way. So the first thing John's going to do is he's going to share a clear conviction, his philosophy, his ideology, his strong commitment is this. Check it out, verse 27. No one, he says to them, this is how he responds when they, when they say this to him, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. So here's John's point. John's point is, uh, is this, my place, everyone's place, whether it's great or small or somewhere in between, everyone's place is the place that God has assigned to him. I'm not in control of that. I'm not in control of the place that I have, but in instead, someone else beyond me is in control of that. The place that one has in life is the place that God gives. Who gives the gifts? Who, who creates the opportunities? Who defines the roles? Who assigns the responsibility? Not John. In fact, Jesus says not even him. He says, I didn't come to do my will, but the will of whom? My Father. I didn't come to speak my words, but I came to speak the words of my Father. And so John's trying to help them to understand the clear thing, the conviction that he wants them to, to buy into, the, uh, the, the theology that he wants them to understand is that, it, that all of that comes from God. And so he doesn't even address their question or their, their matter uh, directly. He does it indirectly by offering this conviction. The phrase in our English Bibles, from heaven, it says it that way because at that time, uh, Jewish people were uncomfortable using the name of God. And so the phrase from heaven, it literally means from God, but they, it's, they use the phrase from heaven so that they would not have the word, the name of God on their lips, was, which was considered almost blasphemous to, to say the name of God, uh, on the, uh, have the name of God be on the lips of a sinful person. So John wants them to understand that first and foremost, this clear conviction about 
who God is, and, and this being God's responsibility to define the roles, assign the responsibility, to, to give the gifts, and all of that. That's not John's business. That's not even Jesus' business. That comes from heaven. So he continues, pick it up in verse 28. He continues by saying, you yourselves, remember when they said, you yourself were the guy that made him what he, what he was, right? Remember that emphatic you? Now John turns the table on them. He says, you yourselves can testify. In other words, you are firsthand eyewitnesses of the fact you heard with your own ears, you saw with your own eyes, when I said what? I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. You heard that. You saw that. You didn't hear that from somebody else. You were standing there. You heard the words come out of my mouth. You saw who I was pointing to when I said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You saw how some of our people actually left to go be with him. You saw that. You heard that. You experienced that. Here's the point John's making. I know who I am, and I know who I'm not. In other words, John has a clear sense of his identity. He knows who he is, he knows who he was not, and he certainly knows who Jesus was. I'm not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him to point to him. So that clear sense of identity is something John um, wants his, his uh, hearers and his followers to understand because ultimately what he wants for all of his followers is not to stay attached to him, but to get attached to the other guy. John understands that. So that clear sense of identity causes him to use an illustration. And the illustration he uses is one that we've already seen in, John, in the Gospel of John. It's one of a wedding. So pick it up in verse 29, first couple of sentences there. John says this, He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend, your translation might say, the friend of the bridegroom, the groom's friend, who stands by and listens for, listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. John wants his followers to understand. It's not that John was not important. He was. It's not that John was not great. He was. Jesus, in fact, said, alluded to his greatness. It's not that John's role was unimportant. It was super important. But for all his, important, all his importance, John is always going to be Jesus number two. Never the number one. Not the groom. Not the Messiah, but the one who is pointing to the Messiah, the one who is the friend of the groom. And so John's saying this, listen, on the day of the wedding, the friend of the groom is not jealous because of all the attention that the groom is getting. It's his day. The friend of the groom is not, a, is not upset at all the interest in and all the focus on the groom. The friend of the groom is actually happy about that. He's, he's actually rejoicing in that. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens to him, he rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. Now, when John said those words, as we hear them, we're like, I'm not sure I understand exactly what he means by that. I kind of do, but I kind of don't. But the people, his followers, when he said those words for the first time, they absolutely understood exactly what he was talking about. You see, the friend of the bridegroom, the groom's friend, had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. This friend of the groom, he acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He actually took out the invitations 
to make sure that they were received by those who were the, the, the couple wanted and their families wanted to be at the wedding. He presided at the wedding feast. He was like the master of ceremonies. It was his responsibility that this thing would go off without a hitch and that it would go super well and that everybody would have a wonderful time and that ultimately these two would become one in marriage. He actually brought the bride and the bridegroom together. It's, it's kind of like our contemporary version of a, of a best man, but it's a best man like to, the, to another degree, okay? Much more responsibility, much more, much more uh, a nuance to it. He had one special duty, this friend of the groom. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover into that chamber. The only one who could get into the bridal chamber was the groom. And so he would only open the door when in the dark he would hear the bridegroom's voice and he recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, when he heard the groom, the friend of the groom was glad and he let him in and he went away rejoicing because his task was completed. So John says, I'm just like that guy. I'm not getting married. He is. But I am super geeked because I have brought them together. Ain't nobody getting into that place except the guy who's supposed to go in there. And when that guy goes in there, when he hears his voice, he willingly lets him in. And when he leaves, he leaves not saying, man, I didn't get married today. Man, nobody showed much interest in me today. But he leaves rejoicing because why? Because he has done exactly the thing that he, his identity called him to do. So what does John say? Next verse. So this joy of mine, this joy of mine is complete. The word is plerao in the original language. It means to make full, to fill up, to fill to the top, to fill to the full, to render something full or complete. John saying, just like the bridegroom's job is done, just like his task is finished and he go, go, go on with his life because what he was supposed to do is done. John saying, my joy is complete. I am filled to the brim with joy because I understand who I am, what I was supposed to do. I have a clear sense of my identity. So now I am fulfilled. He has a sense of fulfillment in life. Why? Because his, he understands his identity. How does he understand his identity? Because he knows that it's rooted not in what he does, but it's rooted in the one who gives it to him. Remember those first verses that we saw when John responded to them? No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. It should hearken for those of you who are Jesus followers to the idea that who's the author and finisher of our faith? Not us, but something beyond us someone beyond us. So John, upset, upset that everyone's going to him. I'm fulfilled. I'm completed. I want everybody to go to him. It's all about him. He's the groom. He's the star. It's his day. It's his time. So I'm fulfilled. And out of that place of fulfillment, because he understands his identity, because he clearly has this conviction that it's not from him that it all comes, but it's from heaven itself, from God himself. John then has one resolve. To be resolved is to be firmly determined to do something. And here's the resolve that John has. Look in verse 30 as we're wrapping up. John says, it just 
Seven words. Seven words that we could all live by as followers of Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. More of him, more of Jesus, more of the Lagos, more of the life, more of the light, more of the Lamb, more of the Lord, more of the Son of God, more of the one who is showing us through all these signs that he is different than anyone else. He is the Messiah. So more, 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 and less, less, less of me. More of him and less of me. That's the point that John is making. That's his resolve. That's his commitment. Now you saw in in verse 24, right? That John, the writer of the gospel, said about John the baptizer that all this happened before he had been thrown into prison. He was thrown into prison because he confronted a leader's inappropriate uh, actions with another person. And as he was waiting there in prison, ultimately... And literally, it would cost him his life as he would be actually beheaded at the request of part of the uh, family group, so to speak, of that person who threw him into prison. And I wonder if as John was sitting in prison, those words that he shared with his followers months or years before rang in his ears. He must increase. I must decrease. Another great pilgrim of God's said it this way. I no longer live. I have been crucified with Christ Jesus. The life I live now, I simply live from the fact that he is alive in me. That's Dave's paraphrase. It's exactly what John was saying. He must increase but I must decrease. More of him and less of me. Folks, as it relates to our lives, there are so many things that are outside of our control. Just like John said, hey, what we receive, that's that's, that's heaven's business. That's God's business. Our roles, our responsibilities, our gifts, our station in life. You can complain about that. Who does it occasionally? Anybody? Only me? Okay, liars. Okay. All right. Even online. Come on. We all complain about that, right? Where we're at, our job, sometimes our family, our neighbors, right? Why we can't have this and have to have that. That's heaven's business. Do you understand who you are in Christ Jesus? Do you have a clear sense of your identity in him? And is that fulfilling you? Do you have that sense of contentment that John had so that you ultimately can be resolved that the only thing, the thing of my life that I can control is that I want more of him in it and less of me in it. Less of my will, less of my agenda, less of my thoughts and less of my desires and more of his. That's the point of this interaction between John and his disciples. I think it's why God inspired John, the writer of this gospel, to capture that interaction so that forever the followers of Jesus would be reminded of this simple truth that carries so much power. He must increase and I must decrease. The worship team is going to lead us in a song, a closing song today that really uh, gives us an opportunity to express that, hopefully not with just our lips, 
but with our hearts. So I hope as we sing this song, it becomes something of a prayer for you uh, to uh, express in a little bit different way those words that John expressed to his disciples. Why don't you stand with me? Uh, I'm going to pray, and then uh, the worship team will lead us in that last song. Father God, we thank you for this passage that we looked at today. We thank you for this life of John the baptizer. We pray that as we uh, reflect on how he reacted to this, inter- to this discussion with his followers, would prompt us to have a reaction that comes close to it, mirrors it. May we, like him, have the desire and the resolve to make it less about us and more about Jesus. It's in his name we pray.